and welcome to Industry Minds, the podcast that discusses the importance of talking about mental health within the creative arts. My name is Cathy Reid. And I'm Scarlett Maltman. And today we are joined by a wonderful creative brain. He is a BAFTA award-winning and children's BAFTA nominated Scottish film and TV director. He's also worked for some of the world's leading brands and agencies. If you don't know his name, you certainly would have seen his work. Um, and you should definitely remember his name. We welcome the glorious Michael G. Burns. How are you today, Michael? I'm very well. And what a glorious intro. Um, yes, no, very well. I'm pleased to be here to do that. Okay, so we're going to start with a little word association game. Oh, right, okay. Right, quick fire association. Film set. Director. Coffee. Morning. Balfron. School. Meter reading. Diabetes. Carrot cake. Sugar. Editing. Fun. Blind man's bluff. <laughs> a great little short film I made when I was 15. <laughs> it was brilliant. Okay. Toe socks with a Birkenstock sandal. Unfashionable. <laughs> Amazing. So let's get to the question. So Michael, um, let's just start by chatting about your career. So you've been making films since the age of 12. So what initially inspired you to start directing? Just talk us through your journey. Yeah, um, so I was always quite an obsessive person when I was younger. So I always had... Um, kind of obsessions when I was younger so I was be you know obsessed with dinosaurs for you know a year and that's all I would talk about for a year and then sharks and superman for a while I'm pretty sure I dressed like superman for a good portion of my childhood and uh, and then this was this was the next the next kind of thing I'm not entirely sure where it came from my uh, the sort of neat story is that my grandfather was involved in not actually filmmaking but he was the director of the Edinburgh Film Festival for a number of years and set up the like the GFT in Glasgow and the Edinburgh Film Theatre and, and so he was kind of uh, and then the director of Scottish Screen uh, for a long time but I don't entirely know how much that had to do with it because I was unaware of that when I was younger so but that sort of helped when I when I started being interested in it so he would lend me cameras and stuff like that so um, and then I'd get family to act in it and it was all it was it was mostly kind of bloody gruesome murdering my family and stuff like that which is uh which is, uh, you know, what kids are into. Um, so I yeah, did that for quite a few years, sort of doing uh, my own short films, like shooting, editing, and uh, directing them all myself. Um, when I And then I just, just did a few things with uh, my school as well, which I believe you were involved in, in, in some of it. <laughs> and here we are now, so many years later. Um, but uh, so the school actually very supportive with that, and uh, I think that was really good kind of sort of cutting my teeth and you know doing all, all that kind of stuff especially when there's obviously no pressure to be doing it professionally and that kind of stuff so it was always something I was very keen on um, parents were incredibly uh, supportive of all I think they kind of gave up on trying to convince me out of it not that they tried very hard but it was, it was clear that I was set, set on doing that um, and uh, yeah so I so I when I finished school just as I was finishing school I was I'd sort of been developing a a low-budget feature film idea, and we actually the local film council in in the village that I'm from uh, actually managed to get uh, some funding from the the lottery and and the, I think it was the co-op at the time um, to fund this sort of low-budget feature idea. So I ended up doing that when I was about 16, um, and I, that was just kind of lots of friends and family helping out, and we cast in Glasgow and. Uh, stuff like that and that was, that was quite exciting at the time 
and uh, we made that over two weeks and that ended up uh, winning a Scottish BAFTA which was great for me um, and uh, and obviously for everyone else involved and uh, that was just before I started at the RSAMD as it was at the time uh, now RCS doing the three years of the film production course uh, which was um, yeah it was it was a, it was a it was a, a good experience being there I think I think that you know it's, it's good having all the the departments there um, if I'm honest and the course was very good happy to have that said for anyone who's listening um, I thought I th- yeah I thought the course s- suffered a bit from uh, just from the the sort of nature of you know people teaching that that, that kind of stuff but I think the the, 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 the I have nothing uh, bad to say about the, the institution I thought the place was uh, great but so it was a good place to kind of sort of uh, meet other actors and musicians and stuff like that but then also you know to mature over three years you know rather than going in and trying to make work after that so I finished there um, having met a lot of good friends and uh, sort of future colleagues. Uh, I then uh, made a few short films and stuff once I once I left there before deciding to move pack up and move down to London. As I was told, that was where I was going to have to go. Um, I would say that's probably accurate. That that, that I that I do, did need to be here for that. I think there's some great stuff going on in Scotland, but it's not plentiful. And I think you know if 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 you want a good shot of have go at it. I think it's a, a, unfortunate as it is. Like I think uh, you have to be here. So, did having that extreme creative outlook from such a young age, did that come with a lot of pressure um, or anxiety? Like, how was that? Just from as a creative child myself, I definitely felt the pressure. I think it was. Um, yeah, I, th- I think it probably it probably did in hindsight. I, don't, I think I sort of I, it was quite a driving factor for me, which was which was quite good. I think it was always. I think I maybe more struggled towards, I guess, of twenty two, twenty three, a little bit more, and it and I would I would be it would be wrong for me to say that it was that it was awfully traumatic, but it was, I think, definitely kind of being, you're very good for your age. I mean, we got we got a lot of that when I was younger, and it was kind of impressive what I'd done because of, um, because of how young I was when I did it. So it's and I think kind of growing into an age where actually it was starting to become an age where people not necessarily expect what I was doing but it was more reasonable or less surprising to find that I was doing that so I think that maybe came with a little bit of uh, a less I think it felt felt less less special I guess if you say so so I think with the the, the pressure I guess I don't I don't think I ever felt I put a lot of pressure on myself I mean I th- think but I think I would argue that was probably good for me in terms of like because I've always been uh, relatively ambitious yeah. for it and I think I think that comes part and parcel with being ambitious yeah absolutely yeah. And um, just going back to um, the BAFTA, uh, so you were 16 when you won a BAFTA, which is like, I, th- I said this to Cathy earlier, and I was like, I think I just learned how to like make a coffee at the age of 16. Like, it's just incredible. Um, did, how, how did that affect you, you know, going back into the creative outlook and the pressure and success? Was that, obviously it's an amazing thing to happen, but, did you put okay? Need to re- reach for the next thing now. I think that's. I think that's probably true. I think. Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't think I could make a coffee at sixteen either. So, uh, <laughs> so there's. <laughs> I did once make as a, as a runner as a work experience. I made I uh, made the actress when I was fourteen uh, green tea with milk in it, and I don't think I. I've never been. I've never. I've never, I've never quite recovered from that. Um, but I think no. I think I, to be honest, it, it was a good thing for me. It's actually it's helped quite a lot. I mean, not. 
directly, but it's a it's a good kind of thing to kind of blag on, I guess, um, for for work. And if anyone's hiring me, it's not a total blag. Um, but uh, but yeah, I, th- I think I yes, I mean, I guess there was there was a pressure to kind of do it a next thing. But um, again, I think it was it was a useful driving force for me. I don't think I ever felt so pressured that uh, that it was uncomfortable. I think I think it. I think I quite enjoy that. I think if I ever felt, I think because because since then things have kind of, you know, that you know how how busy I've been has been kind of exponential. So it's so so it has. I ha, I haven't plateaued at any point. I've I've sort of continued to get busier and and do more and more of what I've wanted to do, which I'm aware is a kind of luxury position to be in. But I think if I think if I felt that at some point it plateaued or we're starting to, you know, sort of peter off, I think I would maybe feel a bit differently about it. But I think at the moment it's quite a good force for me at the moment yeah I think no absolutely you should get a t-shirt that says I want a BAFTA on it I think that would make me a lot less appealing (laughs) not at all so just to finish off the whole growing up section um, you suffer from diabetes Uh, how did you find uh, adjusting to this growing up and how do you find uh, coping with it in the present day I think some some people might not understand what exactly it is could you um, talk us through that yeah, so um, so type one diabetic. That is basically when um, your pancreas doesn't produce insulin. Insulin is required to lower your blood sugar levels. So when someone who doesn't have diabetes eats sugar, their sugar levels go up, and their pancreas releases insulin, which counterbal- counteracts that, and uh, your sugar levels go down. And it's, it's quite an accurate organ for doing that. And I think basically, basically type one diabetes is you have to do that manually because your pancreas isn't producing it. So it's I think from a kind of how did I feel about it? Perspective. It, it, it's it's quite a unique condition in a, in that you are responsible for what happens with it. So basically, you 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 can live a completely healthy life should you adequately look after it. And I think that that has a sort of complex relationship. I think with with mental health. And I think there's there's a lot of um, connections between diabetes and mental health issues. I think that again, it's because of the responsibilities. There's a there's a sense of uh, guilt when you don't do it correctly, and because you know that it's possible to do it well, as hard as it is. I mean, it's a complex um, thing to manage anyway. But I think the fact that you can puts extra pressure on you know. Whereas if you have a if you have an illness where you are not, you're kind of at the mercy of it. Um, then obviously that's incredibly unfortunate that you can't do anything about it. But it definitely you you can kind of just deal with the facts there you're, you're you're told this is this is the prognosis this is what's yeah. happening and you can manage it as much as you can but that is that is what you've got to deal with whereas this i think not say it, it, it's not necessarily worse or better i think it's just it's a different relationship you have with it so i think that from for me was not a great thing growing up i've i've at periods of my life from i got it when i was 13 and I, I've, I've been pretty ill from it i think both uh, physically as i think as a result of my um relationship with it um you know psychologically um and i think that it was always a because i was never i was never a um you know fat child or anything like that and i think when i got that, i put on quite a lot of weight and i had quite a um i, I would yeah difficult i guess relationship with with yeah. the weight related to that and i don't think i was entirely aware that that was why yeah. i think in hindsight that that seems obvious now um but uh, i think that that was a that was a kind of difficult thing to deal with and it's not something I've ever truly got over in terms of a, a, a you know the diabetes relationship to weight and there's a thing called um, I was again unaware of this 
terminology at the time. There's a thing called diabulimia, which basically, if you do, if you don't take your um, insulin, you know, your body just you know excretes the sugar. You know, you pee it out and through it, and it's and it's and it's basically you 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 will not put on any weight. You lose weight incredibly. Um, quickly but of course it's you know it's incredibly unhealthy for you and causes all sorts of problems and I de I was definitely consciously doing that from from maybe kind of 17 to 22 which was not an incredibly unhealthy um, way to be you know I was skinnier and I preferred that and um, but I wasn't healthy at the time and I had a few kind of kind of close call um, health scares as a result of that so I think I think I'm definitely in a better place now with, with regards to that relationship and I can sort of stand outside those facts objectively and see, you know, why I felt that way and why, even why I continue to feel certain ways about it and I can rationalise that. I think it obviously is different when you're experiencing it and you, it's, it's easy to, easier to uh, rationalise sort of from a third party perspective but uh, obviously less, less easy to sort of play that out in, in, in reality and your behaviour as well. So I think that's something I'm still struggling with. Uh, a bit um i yeah i mean i've i've suffered from uh, physical complications from that that still continue um and that's you know unfortunate i think I, I sort of look at it now from a perspective of i can understand psychologically how that how that came to be and, and, and you know why why i reacted in the way i did um to that and it's a difficult difficult thing i think that's a lacking i think in in, in diabetes care and the in the NHS and understanding you know that it's simply not it's not simply a kind of well this is how you manage it physically it's there there is there are obviously psychological complications um associated with how much control you have over it and how much you're expected to look after it and stuff like that so I think that's something that could definitely be um looked at more or at least or at least should be insisted on being looked at more um yeah, so so I th as as I say, I think the um, my relationship has improved again, not not fixed, um, but I think I've just got a more mature relationship with him. I mean, I think as as you as you grow up, you generally have better understanding of of, of any issue, and I think I understand the the variables at play with with it now, and uh, to to a much better degree. Uh, but there's absolutely room for improvement, and I th I think I have. I have sought, um, you know, uh, uh, psychological help from it. I never, to my satisfaction, I don't think uh, it's. Uh, I because my my, um, my boyfriend had um, had a whole load of loads of mental health complications when when he was younger, which I can go into shortly. But um, you know, he's had great success after years from um, seeing therapists and and psychologist and stuff like that and I think that I as as someone who is incredibly rational or values rationality to the degree that I do I think it's a it, I am quite cynical going into these things and kind of I can see the the place that they're making and what what you know what the technique is and I find it quite a difficult thing to sort of sit back and engage with without analyzing everything that's that's going on in it and probably to I mean de almost definitely to a fault there um as I'm sure I'm not appreciating certain effects that just giving yourself over to it um can have um but uh yeah i mean that that's basically where i am with it uh where i am with it now is it's 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 still a complex relationship but it's something i'm i, I guess on the path to managing better and just on that topic about managing it better what what would you like to kind of see your relationship 
result in in the future. So I guess I mean I guess the end point is to have the the, the healthiest um, relationship with it possible, where I manage it to the best of my um, ability without any um, any extra caveats to that. So so I, I I'm pretty sure I know I can I can I can I have the you know the intellectual capacity to, to 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 work out the sugar levels and do all of that kind of stuff and and what has caused me to stop and stop doing that uh, proficiently in, in the past has been um you know concerns about weight and a kind of avoidance techniques to do with that and i guess just playing ignorant to and in which case turning out to be um ignorant to the you know the effects of what i was doing um so i think yeah the the ideal relationship would be to have a, an honest an honest relationship with with the diabetes, where it's uh, these kind of more trivial concerns that I, that, that I had were were not as prominent in the decision making. Brilliant. So just on the topic of weight, um, so you've done various commercials, um, which are all brilliant, um, and one which I actually seen um, was titled "Good Morning Male Bulimia." Um, did you create this idea? Um, can you just talk to us about why you felt it was so important to put? Because it was it was absolutely brilliant. So that um, yeah, so we so we did. Uh, it was it was actually a, a spec advert, so it wasn't actually for a client. We did it off our own backs. Um, the idea um, came from my so my boyfriend, who's actually in it. He's a singer and an actor as well. And uh, he, I say as well, I'm not. <laughs> um, he is a singer and an actor, and he uh, he yeah he suffered from quite bad eating disorders uh, disorder when he was when he was younger and you know and you know he has a much greater understanding of of uh, what he went through obviously than, than than I do. I have you know a sort of rough factual history of what happened. Obviously, I wasn't there and I didn't experience it. Um, but uh, yeah, we we kind of concepted the idea together. I think it, there's been a certain there's definitely been a drive recently to engage more with male mental health um, and. You know the, the fact that the statistics were somewhat skewed before that it felt like that you know eating disorders and uh, mental health were primarily a, a female issue and I I don't know exactly what the statistics are perhaps it is skewed more towards women but that obviously there are you know there, there's a balance to be found in talking about the fact that it affects everyone um, and then so yeah so we uh, we sort of concepted the idea basically to because. The main symptom I, I noticed of, 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 of his when, when, we, when we met and he was still going through it quite a bit was how he always liked to put on a show. I mean, it's going to be sort of socially anxious. And I think that, you know, that with depression and eating disorders comes um, quite often uh, comes a, a sense that, you, you know, a sense of worthlessness and a sense that you're, you're not, you know, interesting enough to be around people. So um, certainly a, a few people I know who have, who have suffered from this are probably from an outside perspective the sort of bounciest and happiest people that you meet and it, and it definitely comes from a kind of over, overcompensation um, whereby you, you want to be the most exciting and engaging person in the room and you, you end up sort of overcompensating and being very chatty and jokey and it's, it's all quite intense and then obviously when you're not with people you sort of fall into a slump and it's because it's tiring as it would be for for anyone. I think I've always um, I think my Temperament has always been a relatively even keel with people, so I don't, I'm not I'm not particularly bouncy or or sort of you know over emphatic or anything like that. But I think he he uh, definitely he still is to to some degree, but um, was quite dramatically so when when we 
first met and I would of course see because I was in a relationship with him you know I would see the the difference between his public persona and his more um, private persona and I think that that was basically the idea of the ad was to was to you know, you know, try and tackle the idea that you don't need to put on a on a show all the time. So we did it in musical form. The idea of the show being the connection, and it's about it was it's about a couple, and she's trying to get him to have some breakfast, and they're dancing around and singing. But actually, he's uh, he ends up feeling pressured into eat, eating breakfast, and then um, throws it up um, afterwards. Which is obviously, you know, the, the idea of the ad was that it was just a sort of shocking. Um, contrast when you when you when you cut straight from the musical to the to the to the quite explicit um, vomiting, uh, but yeah, I think I think it was just it was it's it's quite an important thing. It's one of many things that I'm, I know is, are being talked about in that area at the moment, and I think it's uh, I think it's an area worth exploring exploring more. Through through your work, do you want to explore more the topic of mental health, especially in males? Yeah, I think I I think well, I mean I. I'm interested in the topic and, you know, topics around psychology anyway, um, regardless of it being through my work. But I think, yes, I mean, I, I, would, I would definitely be interested in exploring that further. I think it's, I think for me, the conversation is sometimes wrong about it. I think, I think this kind of, I know even I, I've made this mistake already talking about it, but I think the, the kind of distinction made between physical health and, and mental health or physical health and psychological health is... Is is potentially a bit of a damaging one, is, 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 because we recognise that you know there's absolutely nothing embarrassing about having a broken arm or having a stomach ache or something like that. But there, but there is, as everyone knows, there is stigma attached to men- mental health because we don't view it as, as a purely physical issue. I mean, your your brain is a physical organ. You, everything you experience in your brain is entirely physiology, unless you're um, religious and you believe in a soul or something like that. Then then uh, which I uh, don't. Um, so I so I think all, anything you experience in your brain is ultimately reducible to to physiology. So it, it seems odd to distinguish between physical health and mental health. I think the the main reason for that distinction appears to be that we just don't understand the brain to a sufficient degree to be able to uh, describe it as 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 um, competently as, as you would talking about a, a heart problem or something like that. So so that's so so for me, I think that distinction is is problematic um, because then. It, it, it carries then the burden of having some kind of control over it. The idea that you are fully in control of all the workings of your brain, which is, you know, if you have a sort of rudimentary understanding of, you know, neuroscience, then it's, that's that's not true. Uh, you know, you have you obviously. I mean, this all gets into topics slightly larger than we want to talk about, but free will and all this kind of stuff. But uh, I think what's I think what's, I think I think the idea that we have full autonomy over our brains so you know just snap out of it just you know think happier thoughts all this stuff in a way that you would never consider um the same solution for a for a more traditionally physical problem is 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 the issue and i think that 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 that, that needs to be recognized before as before you start um before you start treating it and i think you know so so there is definitely a taboo surrounding um you know treating it with medicine you know and i and i think that i don't doubt for a second that you know having having watched uh, my boyfriend's you know he, he he's on antidepressants at the moment and has, has been for years and I they they are undoubtedly working and I think that the, the stigma surrounding that I think a lot of you know I guess people interested in alternative medicine and homeopathy and all that stuff I mean I I'm sort of avidly against 
that kind of um, stuff because it, you know, it, 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 you know, it would be called medicine if there was any evidence that it worked. It wouldn't be called alternative yeah. <laughs> medicine. It would be considered medicine if there was any evidence that these things worked. So I think, and I think that is in you know that is sometimes you know thought about with regards to mental health as as, as though physical medicine doesn't work. And I think it, it is it is quite crude. I mean, you know, antidepressant pills are crude, but that is again simply because we don't understand the brain sufficiently. And I have full belief that at some point in the future, when our when our understanding of the brain is is sufficient, there will be, you know, let's you know, a, a pill that could be created for you, for example, where you literally take one pill and all your mental health issues are gone, like you would an antibiotic. It would just require an incredibly complex and nuanced understanding of yeah. of the physiology of your brain, and that's that's definitely it would seem a, a long way off, but. If you if if you believe you're heading somewhere in that direction, then it, then the brain is not this kind of elusive, um, an intangible thing. It's it's something that can be affected. So I think that that has a lot to do with this this the stigma attached to uh, attached to mental health because it's seen as something intangible and something that you know we can just you know we, that isn't to be treated physically. But I think yeah. So I th I, th I think it's important to explore. Um, these kind of issues through accessible formats and I think long-form conversations and um, you know academic work um, definitely does the detailed work in it but and that, that's that's where you can learn um, you know in depth about these things and having you know kind of academic conversations about it and all that kind of stuff is, is all um, very important um, but I think you know exploring things however surface through um, through media is an important way to at least start the conversation. So obviously uh, mental health is a huge thing in society at the moment in general. It's, uh, well, the day that we're recording this is World Mental Health Awareness Day, which is, it's uh, October 10th today. Um, yeah, uh, so obviously it's a big thing in society. Why do you think it's maybe particularly prevalent among creative people? Um, we've just, from starting the podcast, we have had the most overwhelming response and it's clearly something that affects a lot of creative people. So can you give us your thoughts on that? Yeah, so um, I think what's interesting about this industry is that it's people, and I think I think it probably applies to all, you know, so it, it almost definitely applies to success in life in general. But is the kind of illusion that we exist in some kind of meritocracy that you know by you know virtue of your effort and your uh, you know how much you're willing to put into it, you are. You know, that is, is based on that that you will succeed and obviously we know that's not true and it's, it's not true for any portion of society really but it, it's certainly not true for, for actors and, and, and performers I think there are obviously a lot of elements at play um, but you know, if, you th if you think about it you did, you did not choose where you were born you didn't choose your parents you didn't choose the culture the society you were born into you didn't choose the geographic location you were born there are simply so many variables and so many factors set in place that were just sheer luck and so the idea that from that incredibly uneven starting point everyone has the same ability to, to climb the ranks to success is is um you know, it is is almost ridiculous when when you when you think about it, and uh, and I think the same applies to. Um, I think it's it's going to be. I think the, the industry is inherently going to be unfair because we again view. You know the 
it, it's all reducible to, to factors, I think, outside your control. So how talented you are, how good your voice is, how proficient you are at acting without training, how well you respond to training, all of, the, all of these things are, are, again, factors out, totally out of your control. So I think that the, the very nature of doing well is, is, is a series of, of um, I guess, prior, prior causes that led up to the point where, where, you are, where you are now and how much control you have over them is, I think, a lot more limited than people would 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 think it is so i guess that's 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 a decent point to start um thinking about how do you respond to that because that's i guess that kind of goes back to the what i was saying about the the, the sort of illusion of control that you have with diabetes compared to a compared to another um illness where, where you just have to kind of accept the consequences of it and i think even with diabetes i guess but it's you know with with your um you know how well you're going to do, and the opportunities that are afforded to you, and and all of these things are. You, you at some point you just need to accept that that you no one is starting on an even ground, and you can do your best to to fight those things, and you know effort is so important, and but even then that's reducible down to well you know you have the biology that's made you good at putting effort into things, and and all and, and all of these things you know it's it's a. Uh, so I think that once once you kind of engage a bit more with the with with the the idea that it's not a meritocracy, it's not everyone starts at the at an even ground, and it's the people that put the effort in that that do well. As, as nice as that would be to think, I think it, it it helps you relax about it a bit more, and I think that that's I think it would have to because there's you know there's a certain inevitability about where you are, and I think that the the, the reason I think that is one of the that that kind of I think illusion or delusion I guess it is that 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 you know the fact that your friend is doing better than you um is because they are more talented than you or because they are which which they might be but again if they are more talented than you like that is not of their doing or or your doing they might just be more talented with you and that's unfortunate but there are obviously there are obviously variables that you are better than them at and you're you know it I think your experience and how well you do and everything about how you get to the point from birth to where you are now is just a, a series of um, pieces of luck. And, you know, we have the, we have this idea that we have control of, of these things at any point along that journey from birth to now, and I think that's not true. And I think that a lot of our mental health problems related to success and stuff, I, I think, would have to be at least somewhat tempered by the by the acceptance of of that fact um as depressing a thought as that as that sounds that we're but that we're simply it's, it's it's not so much that it is entirely decided for you in advance but that there is only so much a, a autonomy i think people have over their circumstances and acknowledging that i think helps you to not feel like a complete failure if things aren't things aren't going your way because there will be things that you're better at and more lucky as a result of than other people and there are there are things that other people are more lucky about and I, I, I guess you know accepting that it is more likely to lead to you feeling more satisfied with your circumstances and, and, and potentially making more sensible decisions about where you where you go from there I mean I think the, the industry is so concerned um, with things that aren't related to how much you deserve it or how much you want it and if if it if we were being 
you know, ethical about it, and it was and it was t totally fair. It would be the people that wanted it the most, deserve it the most, or the people who had been through the most adversity to get to the point where they are would deserve it the most. And that that is it's just not how obviously it's not how any industry works, but it's, it's certainly not how this um, industry works. And if you're lucky enough to be, you know, six foot tall, skinny with you know the luck of the genetic lottery on your face then that's uh you know that, that that's that that's great for you it's and less good for other people but that might just be the reality of it and i think con continually fighting the reality is, is not a way to be happy yeah yeah absolutely amen to everything you just <laughs> said really and um, so how different is the directing industry to the acting and performing industry obviously you're in a relationship with a performer so I don't know if that was a shock when you initially yeah. realized everything that goes on just talk us through the differences yeah. to people who don't necessarily know what the directing arts directing arts directing yeah. industry is like so I think I mean it's obviously it's a different um, it's a different job but it's uh, suffers from I think that a lot of the same uh, difficulties uh, you are Again, at the, at the at the mercy of your you know your luck and your contacts and where you where you happen to be at any specific time, um, but I think it is I think there's something s slightly more resembling a meritocracy in 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 directing. Definitely not fully, but I think the fact that you are judged upon previous pieces of work that you you know, and then if you are lucky enough to be a talented person, then you're producing good pieces of work, and that is what stands. That is what stands for you, you know, for your portfolio, and every piece of what you do in increases the strength of that portfolio. I think that is what differs it from from acting in terms of someone can be successful, you know, hugely successful in a, in, a, in a big show or, or a, you know, TV series or a film or something, and you know, have all the success and the luck and for that for a year, and then you know, work not work at all for two years simply because you know they're not looking for someone of that physical description. At, at any given point, I mean, you. I think the difference. It's a lot less personal. What I do, I think it, it, it's 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 definitely more based on the work. If I am twenty-five stone, or if I am nine stone, it 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 matters a lot less to my my employers that that is the case. So, and you know, I mean, my personality obviously has has you know plays. Um, a part in that, of course, and you have to you have to be able to communicate your ideas effectively and be eloquent and uh, understand what you're trying to put forward and get people on your side. But I think it's there's something less deferential about about this thing, and I think I think performers often feel the need to, you know, be deferential and they come into castings. I mean, I'm on the directing side of castings quite often, and I think actors coming in and, and you know you can see how much they want it and you can see that they think that the best tactic is to be I guess I guess, I guess yes it's super super deferential and, and, and you're putting a lot out there and I think that it's these all these all you know these all play parts as to how, in how you, how someone comes across and you know and I might like someone as a person more if they if, if, if they're you know more genuine or they're more but again it's if someone comes into a room and they're not what you're looking for Casting-wise, they're not what you're looking for. Casting-wise, no matter how friendly they are, and if they're a bit colder or a bit, you know, I mean, these, these are all elements you might take into consideration sometimes. But it, it, I try not to, and I, I think it's 
I think I think having a partner that's an actor has definitely made me appreciate more how up and down it can it can feel as as a performer because you're at the mercy of of the employers more than more than most jobs. There's not an awful lot you can do to um, to increase your chances other than you know you could be the best you're ever going to be, and it might matter not if your nose is slightly too big. I guess that acting is, is is viewed from an external perspective as as, as a kind of very um, illustrious career, and you know you're the top of the totem pole because you know you have all the sway and all the influence and all those things. But I think for the majority of actors, it's it's the total opposite. I think you are literally at the mercy of of everyone, everyone else, and and people's whims and and opinions and stuff. And it's all very personal. And I think that's what plays the largest, a large um, sorry, a large toll on on actors is just. It's a comment on your character and a comment on your appearance, and a, you know that 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 might be the difference between you getting a job and not getting a job, rather than the quality of your talent, which feels more personal, even if it isn't more personal. Even if even if we do accept that, you know, the fact that someone's more talented than someone else is also just luck. Um, I think it feels more personal to have your you f you feel like you have control over your talent, and you do to some degree. Um, or at least you have the illusion of control over that in a way that you do not have the control over, you know, how big your legs are, or how you know, or you know whether your face is in uh, pleasing proportions or, <laughs> or or whatever. You know, I think that I think that you know that kind of um, how personal it is, is 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 very different to uh, directing because um, you fight a lot of the same battles, but it's not it's not so much about you. Absolutely. So we've spoken in a few other interviews um, about the Yes No campaign, which is something that is really prevalent at the moment and something that definitely, as actors, we have found ourselves, myself and Scarlett, that it's affected us when we haven't heard either a yes or a no. Um, actors know they're going to get rejected. Sometimes all they want is just to know that it's a no. Uh, what, As a director, what are your thoughts on this? So I actually hadn't heard of the the campaign in, in that form but uh, yeah I mean I th I, I'm in complete agreement with that I think it's um, the majority of the time I, I mean I think when you say that actors are going to get rejected sometimes I mean they're going to get rejected most of the time yeah, yeah. It's simply by I mean that's just a statistics game um, but uh, I think that it, yes I mean I think I think it, it's it's something that I've definitely noted in the past I mean it's not entirely also within my control whether that happens we have casting directors that that are the direct contacts with the actors, and I, I think it should be policy that that they are told, and I, I think it's it's laziness that stops that from happening. Um, I, I, you know, the, you know, people will talk about, oh well, you know, I guess if they'll find out if they get it, and they you know if they if they don't hear by this date, they'll not. But these things are never as clear cut as 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 they say they are, and and I know from again being, even just appreciating it logically, that makes sense. But then also. Um, Having a partner who's an actor who I know, you know, will, is on tenterhooks for for a, a decent period after an audition because they don't know and these people might have discounted them immediately and, and I think that is important to let people know because it is you just wouldn't accept that in in, in in most other parts of your life a kind of uncertainty that's so imbalanced that the power the power balance is is so um, biased in one direction and I I, I think yes I. 100% agree that we should be letting people know and I would I have often said that again it, I should I could probably be pushing that more when I when I when I when I when I when I have the when I have the castings but again it's is you know 
it, it's how casting directors work often and it, you know it would never be me that was directly dealing with cast or any of my team that would be directly dealing with um, cast anyway but yes I'm definitely for letting people know either way get on it folks Michael agrees <laughs> So we mentioned earlier that you went to study film production, was it? Yes, um, at the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland. Um, so we've had, obviously, quite a lot of performers on this podcast share their drama school struggles. Um, how was your time at the RCS in regards to mental health? Did you face any mental health struggles throughout this time? Um, obviously, it's a kind of time where you find yourself and grow as a person, I guess. Um, how was it for you? So um, my time at RCS coincided with the, the time that I talked about before um, in terms of my relation, complex relationship with weight and diabetes and stuff like that. So I think my struggles at that point um, from a mental health perspective were definitely more related to that. I think I found the experience of, of, of being at a, a drama school slightly frustrating and these are more specifics about, about about why I had issues with the, the course. I think it, it wasn't a particularly encouraging environment. Um, and I, th- I imagine a lot of a- other actors uh, will uh, agree with that. I think that I think there was there was there was a lot of well, this is how we do it. And as controversial and and cliched a statement as this is going to be, I think there was definitely an element of you can't do teach at play um, in in this in the, in this place. And I and I I think that to discount where people want to go with things and and, and, and quite dismissively so as, as, as it was often and I had quite a odd relationship with the tutors on, on the course. I went in I think at age 17 when I started there was probably an air of arrogance about me that, that put them off. I think I'd had I'd done a lot more prior to the course than, than most people in the course and I think I went in with a sense of what I wanted to do and what I wanted to achieve and it, it certainly wasn't perfected, and I, you know, in, in hindsight, I can clearly see that I had a lot w- long way to go, and I, and I, I certainly had set ideas that I, um, that I would, you know, be more malleable now and more open to change now. But I think that that wasn't recognised as, as 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 the arrogance of a of a teenager, a seventeen year old. That was that was kind of fought against by by the tutors, and I and I, I think that it was a we had a bit of a sort of difficult relationship from there because I think they they kind of wanted everyone at a blank slate and everyone to kind of start again and I think that there, there's there's some merit to that but then there's also definitely merit in capitalising on why you let someone in in the first place based on pieces of work that they've done and sort of building upon that so I, I felt that was a, that was a bit of a, a funny thing I don't think that particularly affected my mental health as such I think it was it was a frustration that I had when there that I'm sure a lot of uh, actors share I think you know training for acting and training for filmmaking stuff they're all I think they they definitely help, um, but I don't think it's the be all and end all of, of of being a good performer. I think I think you have to be intelligent to be a good filmmaker. I think you have to be intelligent to be a good actor. Um, I think that the being able to deliver a line um, and make it sound like a human is 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 the base the base level <laughs> position you need to be in. But to actually bring something. An understanding to scripts and performance and what you're trying to do, I think it requires a, a more intellectual approach to to the material you're working with. So I think as long as you have those competencies, then I think you, it is and and the ability to you know the confidence to um, just speak as a as, as a human. A, I think that is you know you, you, training is not entirely necessary to to get you to that position, but I think it I think it, good training helps. 
it was funny because I, I was speaking to a, fr a friend of mine who's she's an actor and her uh, her boyfriend is not, and he put it he he they went to see a show that they and neither of them thought the performances were very good and you know obviously as an actor she can articulate why she didn't think it was very good and um, I'm not I have no idea what the, what the show was but her boyfriend put it quite um, simply and in, I think quite in a nice way and as as a total non-actor and not knowing what he was saying and he said. Uh, why do why does that girl not sound like a person when she's speaking? <laughs> and of course that sounds incredibly harsh, but 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 that I mean that that's essentially that is essentially what a third party person who doesn't understand, you know, she's going, Well he his you know, his breathing techniques weren't right and he didn't wasn't engaging with or you know, whatever. And uh, and he just said, Why doesn't why doesn't she sound like a like a like a human when she's when she's doing it? And I think that that's quite it's a kind of funny um I suppose that's a total aside to what we were talking about there, but I think it's uh, I think it's quite I think it's quite I think it's quite funny to to see that actually, you know from a from from a you know, a director's perspective I think it, it's you know, you need to have you need to understand what you're doing, you need to be able to intellectualize it and understand what you're trying to put across, but you also obviously need a certain degree of uh, luck that there's a, there is a base talent there so I think so I guess that kind of I don't know how that's going to fit into what we've what we've been talking about but the but the but but you know with training I think it can be the good and bad things about it yeah absolutely so obviously as a director and filmmaker films are something that are a lot more widely accessible um than maybe people who can't make it to um, a theatre um, how important then in that case do you think it is for you yourself and just in general directors to be um, educated and clued up on um, topics of the day, especially mental health, um, in regards to what work you're producing and do you feel like a responsibility um, with the work that you produce? I mean, yes, I think as, 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 as someone who's trying to tell honest and uh, engaging stories with pieces of work, no matter how short it is, I think... Yes, it's important to be clued up on, on, on lots of things, really. I mean, the, the director's job is to put across the human experience, as grandiose as that sounds, put across the human experience as, as honestly and candidly as, as, as possible in lots of cases. And I think that, yeah, a good, an understanding of mental health, I think it's, it's, I think the fact that mental health, the, word, the words mental health are, is, is synonymous with uh, problematic mental health is, is, is not correct as well. I think obviously everyone has a degree of mental health. I mean, there's people that is your mental health is the health of your mentality, and I think that to talk about mental health only when it is what seems like it deviates from from good mental health is a means that only a certain portion of society is educated about it and, and talks about it. So I, I think understanding that everyone everyone exists on a continuum from the most depressed person in the world to the seemingly most free of depression person in the world and everyone exists somewhere in between that it means that everyone should be talking about mental health it means that it's not simply when you show signs of clinical depression is is, is mental health worth discussing um so i think in, in 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 you are dealing with mental health you perhaps you're not mentioning it but you're dealing with mental health in, in every film you watch every character you put forward is displays personality i mean your your personality is a is a symptom of your mental health your how you feel about things how you how what you hate what you love what you care about is is all a result of the the, the mental health that you have and and how and how that forms and i think that you know you we have to broaden the definition of of what is considered good mental health and what is considered bad mental health because at any moment 
in any day you're you're a different place in your mental health than you were five minutes previously and you know five minutes later so you so everyone is existing with mental health and 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 different degrees of how good and bad that makes you feel so i think uh, in terms of work specifically related to tackling mental health issues i think i think it's i think these are important things to happen i think that as i said before i think films are and media is an important way to start conversations i don't necessarily believe they have the capacity to fully explore issues in in in, in the detail that's required to have proper discussion about it. and i would apply that to plays as well i think long-form discussions debate conversation and you know in 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 social settings as well as academic settings are, are, are where issues are properly explored so I, I, I wouldn't purport that um, to be you know giving all the answers in, in a film and I, don't, I think that would be a, a naive suggestion that either plays or films could truly explore the detail required to discuss mental health properly but I think when you talk about an accessible medium and we're talking about a format that people can engage with given that people aren't normally engaging in long form debates and discussions about psychology or, or and the philosophy surrounding it and all of those things i think if if you're if you're not doing that already then i think films and theater have a certain power to 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 raise topics that you might wish to explore further and i think it's important to do that absolutely hallelujah what issues um as a creative do you think that we still need to confront and bring into the spotlight um so i think in terms, I, I think there's been a lot of conversation recently about, um, you know, representation across minorities and, um, you know, in whatever form they take, whether that be LGBT or race-related minority or um, sex-related. I think that it, it, it's quite a complex issue. I think it's complex because there is a drive to address the balance between... A, you know, address the balance with, you know, having proper representation in um, from different communities and different sexes within different jobs, and I think it's it's an incredibly important um, thing that we have an equality of opportunity for everyone, regardless of their circumstances. I think that's an incredibly important thing to address. But I think where it's confused is that that the equality of opportunity is confused with equality of outcome. And I think that equality of outcome is not something we should be striving for because equality of opportunity dictates that if someone doesn't wish or a certain group of people do not wish to engage in certain things, let's, let's say, well, a thought experiment, I'm not, and I'm not saying this is true, but let's say that women are less keen to be engineers. Now, I think that's very probably unlikely. But to say that the only way that a society is fair is if at the end point, 50% of engineers are women and 50% of engineers men are, are men is ignoring equality of opportunity because equality of opportunity also allows the fact that women will say, well, no, I don't want to be an engineer. Um, and, I, and, and I think the same, I think the same needs to be talked about in, um, in a media as well, because when you're talking about having, you know, directors and, 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 you know, and, and there's a lot of schemes now for, women to sort of elevate the opportunities for women because it would seem as though the the there's a kind of sort of patriarchal slant to to decisions that are made i think that it's an issue that is 
talked potentially talked about at, at the wrong level. I don't actually believe that blaming the Oscars for for only having white um, or male or whatever nominees at, at the at the at the point where um, the awards are being nominated is is the right position to be talking about it. I don't think that saying that the film industry actively discriminates against female directors. I don't. I actually don't think that's true. I think that the problem is far more systemic than that. I think the problem is that you know women or 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 black people or gay people or whatever whatever minority we're talking about are not encouraged societally from a, from from a a young age to wish to be in those careers. So 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 women are not encouraged to be directors because the kind of traits, the kind of um, character attributes that are valued as a director or as or as a leader in business or any of these things where you take control are male attributes they are stereotypically male attributes it's, it's confidence and dominance and and control and all of those things that are culturally male attributes they're not necessarily biologically male attributes but they are well they're, they're quite gendered attributes from 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 uh, birth uh, and, and and when you grow up you know obviously men are encouraged to you know be dominant and women encouraged to be more passive and uh, you know agreeable and i think that that is where that is where the issue is that that's where things need to be addressed and because because if the if the career of in business or the career in directing requires you to be dominant and um you know forth forthright and, and and not not aggressive that's not what i mean but you have a confidence in your own abilities and actually what they're finding is that the people that are not being represented, so let's say women are not being as represented in in, in directing, are aren't showing those attributes. Well, maybe that's a problem. Maybe the, maybe the problem is that there that those that the attributes that are appropriate for doing that job as best you can are not typically female attributes. But that's not a biological claim. You know, these are things that are culturally placed upon women from from birth. And I think that's so. So I think I think the conversation around the fact that you know, executive producers who are hiring directors are actively discriminating against women, or actively discriminating against against gay people, or any of any of these things. I don't think that's that is. It's as simple as that. I think I think there are, I think there are more things at play. So, you know, take from that what you will. Yeah, like I I agree with what you're saying there because I think in maybe 20, 30 years time, there's going to be a much wider scope of people because the conversations that we're having at the moment we can now pass on to the kids at the moment the reason I think why things might not happen as quickly as we'd maybe like them to happen is because um, the people who are in the public eye at the moment the people who are creating work at the moment um, a lot of them were born in the 70s 80s 90s where there there was still this very gender bias which um, which isn't so much a thing anymore I noticed even such a difference from um when I was babysitting 10 years ago when I was 15 to when I'm 25 now um, the stuff that kids are told and, and exposed to and, and taught in school really yeah so I, yeah so I think that the um, yeah I think approaching issues to do with representation across whatever you're talking about representing um, is an issue to be thought of not in terms of um, well here's a numbers game and here's, you know, there's not as many of these people doing this and, uh, you know, trying to understand why that is the case. And I, I don't think approaching it as though 
the film industry or employers are, you know, just totally sexist and it is simply because you are female or simply because you're gay or simply because you, that is the reason you're not being hired. I think there's a lot more at play to do with how, how, how we treat gay people or how we treat women or how we treat black people in Ireland and the cultures that they're from um, and, how, and what attributes that nurtures with, within people and, and we need to look at the attributes that we value in society. It is, it is not an identity problem I think it's a, I think it's a, a, a what attributes we we value um, so I think it's about and I, th and I think sort of movements like you know schemes for female directors and and making sure that you know that I, I'm consistently faced with representation in, 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 in advertising you know we are told we you know we have to have a, a one black person and there needs to be one woman and there needs to be someone in a wheelchair and there needs to be you know and all of these things and I think that there is definitely a, like there are, there are very good intentions behind all of these things. And I think it's I think it is relevant when you know you're trying to represent a society that that, that does these things all exist within. Um, so you know so having you know I think I think I think that representation is important, but I don't think it's good that it's that it is, is as tokenistic as it is. And I and I and I think that you know rather than you know fighting to have you know, one black person in something or a gay character and something, you know, we should be writing stories that are relevant to those those cultures because these cultures are thriving cultures and, you know, the gay culture is, is a, 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 you know, a, a very thriving culture as is, you know, black culture, which I am, of course, not part of and don't understand the nuances of. I can talk slightly more with authority on the, on sort of, you know, gay society, but we need to be writing stories that are relevant to those those societies and, and not just relevant or, or not just stories about those societies in relation to you know heteronormative white society so stories about gay people struggling at school is these are all these are all relevant topics but there's also a, a happy culture a happy gay culture and a, you know so i think it, it's about what stories we write um, and how they're represented rather than trying to address a balance when the actually potentially the demand isn't there so having so saying that you know, there needs to be 50 percent let's say it was it was gay or female or whatever it's 50 percent female directors on a course and 50 percent male directors now if there are you know, a hundred applicants and ninety of them are male and ten, ten of them are female, that is very unlikely to be an accurate representation of the talent if you are taking fifty fifty on, on a on a you know a sex basis. Um and I know some people would definitely argue that that's necessary to make progress, but I, I would argue that's a, a quality of outcome argument and I think that's something to be avoided. I think a quality of opportunity is to be um, is to be encouraged, and that those those are competing things. So I think talking about what we encourage in, you know, encouraging women, not not necessarily encouraging women to be directors, but saying you have the option to do that as much as a male has the option to do that, um, is it will end us up in a place where it should be a, 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 you know, based on your skill and based on your effort, as much of those things as we've talked about are luck. You know, you are you are potentially lucky to be male, potentially lucky to be straight, potentially lucky to be talented. I mean, but then women are also lucky to be talented and lucky to be female in so many ways. And I think it's, it's, it, it, it's, a, it's a complex issue with regards to where 
there are gender there there are definitely gender biases in in all jobs and we do hear about the ones where it seems completely unfair towards towards women you know talking about you know the CEOs of companies and and you know directing is, is, is one of those things um, because it's because it seems so imbalanced and it, and it is imbalanced in it and as we say I think it's probably to do with the attributes that are associated with and valued for those jobs but then there are also um, you know you know 99% of you know bin men are male and and there are a lot of undesirable jobs that that are that are heavily male and we and, and and you know we're not campaigning for 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 um we we accept we accept we accept the fact that potentially women don't want to be bin men and you know and and that you know that there are a lot of unpleasant jobs that are male dominated as well so i i i just don't think it's quite as clear cut as talking about just dis consistent discrimination against women i think that it is possible that culturally or biologically or, or, or probably a mixture of the both that men and women can want different things and they can also want the same things and and they should have the opportunity to want different things or want the same things and and the opportunity should be open to lead to where that leads and I think that having an equality of outcome approach whereby we're only satisfied when we've dictated that every woman wants everything that every man wants is, is I, I don't think that's a good place to be heading towards. So just um, just quickly following on from uh, that great wee discussion that we had on there, um, why particularly do you feel so strongly um, about it being opportunity? Yeah, I think I think I think for me the the reason I think it's important to talk about opportunity over outcome is that I know how differently I feel as. And, and I am aware this could be a result of uh, the culture that I'm born into and how I've been, um, you know, indoctrinated by, by, by a certain culture. And as a, you know, and if I look at as, as a, you know, the, all, all, the, all the variables that make up my elements that make up my, all the elements that make up my personality are who I am. So, you know, the fact, the fact that I'm Scottish might make me more likely to want a certain thing or the fact that I'm male may want, want a certain thing or gay or five foot eight or you know blonde or or you know having been born into you know the parent of uh, the child sorry of, of of two teachers i mean all of all of these things when i was born where i was born who i was born to these are all elements that will inform what i want and what i um, what I don't want and I think that's that's why it should be it needs to be about opportunity because it, we should not be dictated it, I would feel uncomfortable it being dictated to me what path I needed to take to make things fair and I, sh I, I should have the opportunity to explore what options I feel are appropriate to me as should any man or any woman or anyone of any of any of any variety should have the opportunity to do that and that might not as uncomfortable as it might be for people trying to create total equality that i i would argue that that is the equality we want not 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 that we play a numbers game of you know the you know government is 50 percent gay people and 50 trade people because that's a, a totally unhelpful way to look at things i think so finally, our last question, um, one created by the great Scarlett Maltman, which we were asking everyone. C uh, could you walk into a room today and saying, I'm having a bad mental health day? 
So I probably wouldn't phrase it in that way. Um, I think if we mean by uh, having a bad mental health day, not feeling exactly as you would like to feel in that particular scenario, I think that's um, contextual. I think it depends on where you are. I, th I think in certain professional circumstances, I would feel that that wasn't an appropriate thing to say um, for a number of reasons. I don't, th I, and I don't think that's necessarily a an oppression on my right to speak freely. I think we're all we all have to exist within certain parameters to continue going, and that might include not, you know, spilling your feelings all the time. I think it's incredibly important that people open up more about how they feel, um, but also knowing when, when, when you know, it, it's, it's a pro, pros and cons game of, um, am I going to benefit more? from saying how I feel or am I going to benefit more from not saying how I feel and if you can do that accurately, if you can do that well, you can play that game well, then that's the best place to be. I think, I think you, want to, you want to be in the position where you, where, you, where you understand and I think that obviously mistakes are made where people feel like they can keep repressing things and, the, and that it's better not to mention it and then that builds up and becomes a problem. But then again, you're you're going to suffer also from from doing the opposite, from talking all the time about it. I think you know. I think you have to be like anything in life. You have to be um, you have to be tactical about it and and uh, and be as honest as you can with yourself as to as to what is the better play in that scenario. So yes, in certain circumstances, when I when I know the people well, and I I, I could say, do you know what? I'm not feeling up to this today, or I'm not in the best place to talk about it. When I mentioned to you that I was. I've been up all night with a with a cold, so I'm maybe not as sharp as I as I would have been otherwise. But I think that's I think that's a, a good thing to be able to say that you're. If I feel comfortable saying that I've been up all night and you know and I've had a cold and that's going to affect how I perform today, then you should be equally comfortable saying that you have, you know, you're feeling depressed or whatever if you have depression or or whatever. So I think yes, I think you should be able to say that, but I think it's also you have to take into account the context of what you're saying and if you're going to suffer from being so open about it that's also something worth considering absolutely brilliant so are you ready for a little game michael so this <laughs> this is called finish the sentence yes that's correct right so first question first question first game when i first moved to london i thought this is quite nerve-wracking. My favourite part of the day is... The morning. Why the morning? I think because I feel best in the morning. Oh, I'm not a morning person at all. <laughs> um, my favourite job was... Oh, that's a tough one. My favourite job specifically was when I did a film and we shot across the east coast of America and it was not the best film I've ever made it was it was actually relatively boring but we were away with a great team of people and it was a very fun experience it was my first uh, it was a few years ago and it was my first time shooting abroad and I thought it was great fun you go to amazing places as well I always see in your Instagram <laughs> Uh, maybe that's an issue worth discussing as well. How we feel our need to post everything on Instagram, oh, yeah. but uh, but no, uh, yes, I've been lucky enough to be had the opportunity to go to a lot of great places and um, be show offy and share it on Instagram. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> In the future, I want to continue doing what I'm doing, 
and get better at it and get better and bigger jobs and to be happy when I'm doing it. Today I am grateful for... The opportunity to be able to speak on your podcast. Oh, <laughs> cutie, thank you. My favourite hungover munch is... Well, I feel I feel um, obligated to say Aaron Peru as a Scottish person. I mean, it's not really a munch, but it is considered the, the, the Scottish hangover cure. I don't know. I, I actually, I, yes, a sugar-free Aaron Peru. And I won't munch it or drink it. <laughs> Last one. My guilty pleasure is... I don't have any guilty pleasures. Because I don't find... I, I don't feel like we should be guilty about oh. things that don't require guilt. I think it's important to be guilty about things that you've done wrong. But uh, I don't actually have any guilty pleasures. I think I favorite pleasure then. Favorite <laughs> pleasure. Well, <laughs> that's a large topic. Um, no, I, 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 I um, I'm quite work focused, and I actually spend an awful lot of my free time doing doing work related things. But no, I do enjoy just sitting down and watching telly. And as generic an answer as that might be. Have you watched Killing Eve? I have watched Killing Eve. I thought it was great. I will say nothing as apparently some of Kathy hasn't watched it yet. She, you're what? Half, I'm halfway through it. I finished it on the day I binged it. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. It has been so great to have a director on here and hear your perspective as well. I think it's really important that, um, especially we as actors, we hear perspectives from all across the industry. If you would like to be featured on the podcast or you just have any thoughts that you'd like to share with us, please give us an email. We are on industrymindsuk at gmail.com. You can also find us on social media. Our Twitter and Instagram are at industrymindsuk. We are on Apple Podcasts and on SoundCloud. Please make sure that you subscribe and give us five stars if you like what you hear. Thank you so much for tuning in and we will see you very, very soon. Bye. Bye. Goodbye.